Oh, welcome to Left Out, a reality-based independent radio on WRCT 88.3 FM and on the World Wide Web at leftout.info. Uh, left Out discusses the news from a perspective left out of the mainstream media. I'm Bob Harper. I'm Danny Slater. And today's program is produced by Matt Horniak. As usual, uh, listeners are, are welcome to call us, invited to call us uh, at uh, 412-268-9728. That's 268-WRCT. Or you can also send electronic mail to bob at leftout.info, and we'll be monitoring the mail stream uh, during the program. Bear in mind, however, there's a few minutes delay to, for electronic mail to reach us. Uh, we have a few announcements, as usual, at the beginning of the show. Uh, one is to remind our listeners to listen to Democracy Now! every morning, uh, weekday morning at 8 a.m. on WRCT. The Fighting Lefty Review on Wednesdays at uh, at uh, 6 p.m. on WRCT. And Rust Belt Radio on, um, on at this time slot on Mondays on WRCT. I have a few other, um, <clears throat> a few other points to mention. One is the uh, the annual convergence to close the School of Americas. The School of Americas being uh, a, a training a training organization run by the U.S. government to train uh, to train uh, governments in uh, notoriously in Central America for uh, dealing with their uh, with their political opponents. In uh, November eighteenth to twenty first, uh, and the information about this is on the uh, is on the leftout.info website. You can register for a bus trip to go to Fort. Benning, Georgia, to join the uh, protest, which is being organized by our very own Thomas Merton Center, which is uh, reachable at thomasmertoncenter.org. Another point is that on Thursday, that's uh, November the 17th at 5 p.m. in the Allegheny County Courthouse, the Allegheny County Council is holding a public hearing about the selection of uh, voting machines, electronic voting machines, uh, that they're the so-called DREs, direct uh, recording election machines, which they're choosing, uh, will, will be choosing very shortly, and they're having a hearing on Thursday that the public is invited to attend. And if you do that, you need to, if you wish to speak at the at the at the hearing, uh, both Danny and I will be speaking. Have registered to speak at this hearing. If you wish to speak, you uh, must register in advance by contacting the chief clerk of the county council no later than noon tomorrow and ask to speak. Uh, and uh, that. That number can be you can find on the left out at info website the telephone number or electronic mail address and uh, and as I mentioned Danny and I will be speaking this is a topic that we've covered on left out uh, a while back we had on uh, David Dill who's a professor at Stanford University who founded uh, voterverifiable.org and he's been encouraging um, people to support the idea of what is called a voter verified uh, paper trail of voter verified uh, uh, voting in which um, in which there is a paper record essentially a receipt, if you will, of uh, recording your vote, what vote you have in order to guard against the possibility of election fraud. I know it seems implausible that there could be election fraud in the United States in this day and age, but uh, it, there, there is the possibility. And, and in the outside chance that, uh, that something like Florida or Ohio would happen again, we uh, want to do our best to guard against that. And the county council is making the critical decision about the type of voting machine, which of three particular models they think they will have on display. Play, as I understand it, and uh, I w personally, I, I will be speaking, advocating uh, the uh, voter verifiable paper trail. And uh, but you may you may also like to speak on whatever matters you consider important, uh, or or maybe wish to just be there to lend your support. So today on our show we have a uh, a guest um, who is uh, named Elizabeth Minnick, and uh, she's a co-author of a book with uh, Cy Khan. And the book is called The Fox in the Hen House, How Privatization Threatens Democracy. It's a really great book um, that Bob and I have been reading, and uh, we'd like to talk to Elizabeth about um, a bunch of topics that were brought up and raised in the book. Elizabeth, are you there? I am indeed. Welcome to Left Out. Thank you very much. It's great to listen to all you were just saying. That's heartening. Good for you all. <laughs> <laughs> we do our best. So thank you for appearing on Left Out. So, um... Well, uh, may, maybe it, I mean uh, maybe I, I assume the, our listeners probably know what privatization is. Uh, uh, well, I mean the idea of uh, that more and more government functions being turned over to uh, to private corporations um, is the general, I guess, the general vague definition of it. In the book, they give another definition, uh, actually, um, of privatization. Um, but maybe you could just talk about uh, just overarching the big picture of privatization and, and the growth of privatization, Elizabeth. Um, you know, it is, it is interesting that there, on the one hand, privatization is a 
term that people became familiar with, particularly with the push to privatize Social Security. I think that's when it made it into the broader national consciousness. Yeah. Um, and it is true that we've defined it a little differently than is usually the case. So maybe I should just say something about that and then connect to the broader, please, the broadest possible do. issue. Is that all right? Yes, please Actually, do. I have the definition here, and, and, and I can read it if you, if, if you want me to. Okay. It says, privatization is a concerted, purposeful effort by national, multinational, and supranational corporations and the individuals, families, shareholders, officeholders, non nonprofit and religious organizations that they have made or promised to make enormously wealthy to undercut, limit, shrink, or outright take over any government and any part of the public sector that, one, stands in the way of corporate pursuit over ever larger profits, and two, could be run for profit. Mm -hmm. And there's another key dimension to that. That's why we call okay. it the fox in the hen house. Okay, so pl please explain. That's quite a lot of quite a lot in one in one breath. It is indeed. It, um, there's the academic side of me that comes out on occasion. Um, privatization has to do with taking over the government functions, goods, services, resources, all those things that we share because we're committed to the public good and to the principle of democracy that unites us with our fellow citizens and people in general in this country, um, taking these over to run them for profit. That's basic. And we know that internationally, too. You know, there's the shock therapy privatization, as it was called, that was practiced in Russia, and we see it as an agenda in Iraq. We see it uh, around the globe at this point. The point is to um, shrink government, as they like to say, Grover Norquist and others, Karl Rove, um, and replace it with these huge for-profit corporations. Um, and that's, on the one hand, to take over all these nice, plump areas where profit could be made, like schools, you know, and ever more of medical care and parks and lands and welfare services and so forth, um, prisons, the military. The extraordinary thing about those is profit, potential profit centers, of course, is that most of them have less discretionary choice involved. I mean, the wonderful thing from the perspective of a profit maker is with things like schools and health care um, is you've got a pretty much captive audience, and you've got at the present moment, you've got the IRS serving as your bill collector. That's our tax money that's, still, that's going to the corporations when they take them over. But it doesn't come directly from us. It, the government collects it from us and hands it over. That's privatization. It's removal of um, public goods into the for-profit the deep, 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 deep pockets there. So the other aspect of it that's key um, and that people are aware of but don't often have right in the front of their minds um, is, of course, that when you so-called shrink government, something takes its place. What takes its place at these for-profit corporations I was just talking about, as people know. But when you've done that, you have also, of course, shrunk the areas in which we, the people, have rights that we give substance with also uh, related responsibilities. Shrinking government, people say, get government off your back. This is going to be better. You won't be regulated so much. This will be great. You'll be free. No, you won't. No, you won't. The basic defenses of our freedom, the provisions of rights and always responsibilities also, that's what gets shrunk. That and the government that still, to some extent, does have to be responsive to us. So there's a, there's a backlash aspect of privatization as an agenda and an ideology, a backlash against the great movements of our time, the civil rights and the women's movement and disability and gay and lesbian and ecological and so forth. These movements have brought lots of people together, pressured the government, gotten new rights and possibilities for basically the majority of humankind, since women are alone in all our differences are 51% humankind. These are crucial achievements, as are the achievements of unions over the years and going all the way back to FDR, you know, the uh, provisions to make work better, safer, um, to establish benefits for people, weekends and so forth. Right. Well, what, Privatization what... is a backlash against all of that. It's to get rid of all of that. Yeah. Excuse me, I'd finish. Yeah, <laughs> oh, sorry. Okay, well, well but what about the, the, the arguments that, that, <clears throat> that kind of have been Sort of in the in the ether about about, uh, I guess, just the nature that well, corporations are more efficient. 
right. that corporations uh, can do things better than government. Government is inefficient because they don't have the because well, it's government apparently because government but because uh, they you know they're just lazy because there isn't any you know any 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 uh, accountability the way in a, corp- in a corporation there's accountability because the the profit at the end of the line if they're not making a profit they're going to get replaced by somebody else and and. Um, so governments are inefficient for that reason, and therefore we we just have to do it. There's no other there's no other choice. You know, we, it makes more much much more sense to just turn almost everything over to uh, private corporations, right? That's what they say, and usually that's presented two ways. One is in relation to a specific proposal to privatize something. So it comes out as if privatization is just a kind of management adjustment. You know, we'll just give it to this group over here that can do it, as they like to say, more efficiently. They also like to say they can do it more cheaply, but that's a little misleading since they are now also going to have to make a profit, right? Mm -hmm. So something's going to give, most likely workers' rights and pay, and they break unions and so forth. So it's a little little misleading. But it gets presented, to say the least. It gets presented as just a technique. You know, we can get this done better. Behind that, however, is this ideology that says, you know, government is bad and the so-called private sector is good, um, and it's, it is said that it's more efficient. One question to ask oneself at that moment is, do you really want the United States to be run by supranational corporations, even if they were more efficient? They are not democratic. We yeah. do not have the rights in relation to corporations that we have provided by our government. You beat back government, and you don't have the strongest support you've got for some of our hardest-won rights. We got those by getting rules passed, by being active in our government. So it's a, it's a very scary thing, even if it were more efficient. Yeah. So, and so, on the ground, it's not. Most of the studies in most of the areas that have been privatized, it's at best a mixed record and often an appalling record. Uh Yes, well, there's a. Uh, I think we have a we have a phone call. No, no, no we well, don't. we're we're talking with Elizabeth Minnick, who's a, a co-authored a book called Fox in the Hen House: How Privatization Threatens Democracy. And you're welcome to give us a call. Just to remind you of our number, it's four one two two six eight nine seven two eight. So uh, I just uh, had written some notes here before the program, and and one little section of my notes has to do with philosophical arguments in favor of privatization. Uh-huh. And the flaws with those arguments, um, and we've gone through several of them already. The private corporations are more efficient. We already commented on that. Government is incompetent. Well, that's something. Sometimes it has been, but usually, most likely because of the deliberate, uh, you know, uh, erosion of the capabilities, such as we saw with uh, with the FEMA. Um, that's another example that they they like to use, though. Um, well, that's now, ex- that's a part of a pattern we found in every area where we studied privatization when you're doing research for the fox in the hen house what happened in fema followed the pattern we set out in our book almost to the letter first they locate an area they want to privatize you know big fat chickens they want to take over then they badmouth it they say in this case joe albus said immediately um you know that's a it's a bloated entitlement program with our schools they say they're failing with social security they say disaster crisis they say bad things about it we're sort of primed. You know, we're Americans. We're prickly about government. We're primed to believe this. Then they said about actually making what they said true. They break it, as they did with FEMA. Mm-hmm. You put cronies in charge who are utterly inept and unqualified, and they're not even supposed to be qualified. That's the point. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, you do this on purpose. This is not just greed <laughs> and corruption. And then and they disempowered it. They, it's removed from the cabinet. You defund it. Um, and you add all kinds of rules and regulations, as they did with No Child Left Behind, for example. You, impo- you defund the public schools, then you impose all kinds of new rules and regulations and requirements on them. And if they're barely making it anyhow, because they didn't have enough money to do their job that we need them so badly to do, that pushes them over the edge. They start actually failing, just as you said. We, we call it in the, in the Fox and the Hand House, we call this, you know, sort of after the fact truth. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And then you say, when it's failed, like FEMA, which had been broken, it was doing quite well under Clinton. It had on-the-ground response teams and all kinds of – it was being very effective. But they literally broke it, defunded it, and sort of pulled back from all kinds of things. Lo and behold, it failed. It did not do well. <clears throat> and what do they do immediately? They say, see, government can't do it. 
But for once, I think maybe that uh, that, that argument doesn't have as, quite as much traction as it used to have. Uh, I think many people have uh, realized well, when, seen through it. when watching what happened in New Orleans that, yeah. wait a minute, the government, that, you know, the situation, that's an interesting point, is that, that you mentioned about FEMA and the way in which uh, government uh, organizations are, are being, you know, primed to fail by various means, including installing incompetent nincompoops, put them in charge, or to uh, make uh, regulations or restrictions or requirements that they can't meet, and so on. This is an uh, interesting pattern. But what, what people uh, are really realizing is that, like with FEMA, I think the reaction in most of the country was, what a disaster, this is terrible, FEMA should be doing a better job, it should be fixed. Yeah. But the thing is, is that what people have to realize is, no, this is the intended outcome. This is Grover Norquist's heaven. This is the way it ought to be, according to these clowns. That's exactly right. So, and I think that people don't quite realize what the implication is for them of, of this nonsense that's being spouted by people like Norquist. So I take heart, though, because uh, you, uh, you may want to comment in, in Colorado. I don't know if you're up on this. There was a bill that was uh, passed yeah. in the most recent. I wonder if you might like to comment. It's pertinent to this point. Well, you probably have much more close-in information than I do. The people who were watching from the rest of the country took heart in what you all did. What why don't you explain that? Okay, yeah, so the, the uh, voters uh, decided to roll back a provision. There was a provision uh, law passed in 1992, I believe, which required that any, uh, any surplus uh, tax revenue be sent back to uh, the taxpayers in the form of a check, and they couldn't be used to cover additional expenses in that were necessary in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And they rolled back that provision because people recognize that, after all, the government is doing something useful, and stuff does need to get done, and it does cost money, and we ought to be spending money on that. Yeah. Yeah, I think people, I, th I think and I certainly hope that people are coming around. One of the interesting things is, of course, in times of crisis, the kinds of crisis that these, this administration takes advantage of to impose their already designed agenda, we've seen them do that in the crucial decisions of our times, from 9-11 and then declaring a war on Iraq that had already been planned and so forth. Um, and with Katrina and the Gulf Coast, they had already planned. They were working away on gutting FEMA, and they immediately followed a number of their other agendas there, like privatizing schools with vouchers. Oh, maybe. right. After, after Katrina, the aftermath, yeah. they, they immediately jumped into to the whole agenda uh, and, and, and issued these no-bid contracts for corporations right. to do all the cleanup work, reduced the minimum wage of the people they were, right? There, there were rules about hiring people to do the work. They cut the wages that were, they, were, they tried to do that. I think they had to repeal that because it was so egregious. Um, and um, they, oh, they built. The, they, put the, they put these people up in hotel rooms and stuff. For, for, didn't they oh, do that? They tried to get them out of this, move people around. Uh huh. Uh huh. They, and with the uh, schools, you know, they've been pushing vouchers and trying to privatize schools to get public money that's designed directed should be going to public schools into private pockets. That's always the direct direction they want: public money into these private pockets. Um, they immediately put in place a plan that actually effectively is the largest privatization in education we've ever had in our history by giving something like $6,600 that could be used by student anywhere in the school for private schools, including religiously affiliated schools. That's mm -hmm. what, they've been pushing vouchers and not getting very far with it because, just as you were saying, comes right down to it. We do know that the public sector is important, and we have a lot of stake in it. People have been, you know, playing around with this vouchers idea, but resisting. You get a disaster in the Gulf Coast, you need people who need schooling, and what they do to solve it is privatize, same as the private contracts. The agency was broken, but Joe Alba, the very same guy, was on the ground almost immediately handing out those no-bid contracts to Halliburton and its subsidiary, Brown and Root. Mm. They know how to do that. That was ready to go. So Their FEMA didn't fail. Their FEMA did what it was supposed to. <laughs> That's a very good point. So one of the things that, that your book, uh, well, the subtitle of the book is How Privatization Threatens Democracy. And um, some some listeners might be confused, like, what does this have to do with democracy? Well, even if they don't like the idea, uh, where is the threat to democracy? Mm -hmm. And I have an answer to this that I read, read from your book, uh, but maybe and maybe you're thinking the same thing I am. Um, Go ahead, Elizabeth. Okay. <laughs> I'm willing to listen to what you think. Well, okay. Right? What, I, what I was going to say was that once, once a corporation gets a hold of all of these, all of these roles in, in society, and you mentioned Lockheed Martin, which is a huge defense contractor, but apparently they're also doing other things like dealing with the welfare roles. 
Um, or the other the example is the prison system where they're, I don't know if they're doing it, but there's companies that do prisons. Once you get this in, corpor- in corporate hands, suddenly those corporations have a stake in public policy. Like the more people are locked up, the better for the corporation. Mm-hmm. So now they're now they're trying to lobby for their own interest with their own you know using lobbying money uh, to get the, the the representatives and senators to do things that are going to improve their profits, like create situations that are going to ha- cause more prisoners to to be more people be locked up and thrown in jail because that increases their profits. So suddenly you've got this situation where where the power, the democratic power, which is supposed to be in the hands of people, is being completely overtaken by the corporate uh, you know agenda. Exactly. Instead of we the people being sovereign, as it says, um, we the people become another large source of profit. We already are, but in relation to some of our most basic needs and the things that we established a democracy to provide for ourselves and for each other. It's a democracy has this wonderful commitment to equality, which is not just abstract you know, with an equal sign between you and me, it says there's a kind of mutual implication. And in order to have a democracy where we all make decisions about the issues that we vote on, the important issues of our lives, we have to have, for example, public schools. This is important. So we provide them as a public right, um, and we then have a responsibility to, to help our schools do well. When those be- get be turned into the chickens and the hen house that the fox is going to feed on, it's subverted, fundamentally subverted. The purpose becomes running it for profit. And what you were saying about prisons is exactly right. Um, when and there are huge for-profit corporations that now run prisons for profit, which just makes my eyes roll back in my head, and that's what Saikon, my co-author and grassroots leadership, his organization, have been working against for many years now. If you have private prisons for profit, it's a business. The business of prisons is locking people up. If that's where you make your money, you need more people to lock up, mm-hmm. not less. If they stay in longer, so much the better. If they come right back, so much the better. Which has nothing to do with the... the, the the goals of the prison system. The exact opposite, in fact, of the exactly. goal to get, to get people rehabilitated to go into society and 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 and, and be you know law-abiding citizens and and. Um, hey, you wouldn't want to put yourself out of business, now, yeah, would you? Yeah, right. And the military, the military story, which is another one that sort of yes, curdles please. the blood, of course. Um, according to some of the major studies now, the United States military is probably the most privatized in the world. I, they always have to say privatized, uh, probably, because so much of that is, is secret. But it's very heavily privatized. And what that means is not this kind of benign-sounding, there's some contract, contractors over there. It means that the United States government does contracts with these supranational private military firms, they've now decided to call themselves security firms, who will sell people who will fulfill many of the functions of the military, from fighting, killing, to training, um, and various kinds of surveillance, to anybody who can pay for it. Now, this is not the way for a democracy to do its wars if it must do wars at all. If people vote for a war, if a democracy goes to war, the people should be involved with that. It should be on us. I mean, this is what infuriates people when the um, representatives of government, you know, their children don't go to fight. Yeah. Um, when you, you contract it out, you send huge amounts of money into the pockets of these international military companies that can, of course, like any profit-seeking company, shift sides if they make more money on the other side. I mean, what is that? What well, was another another example of the, the, the horror of that point. issue, which is the fact that when when uh, these people do something that's outrageous, when they torture, when they kill, gratuitously kill somebody, when they do anything that's not proper, what jurisdiction? What what? Who is supposed to be uh, deciding that, that this was that this was uh, a bad you know illegal, illegal act of war? This usually the American the, the, the American military has whole codes of. Codes of, of con- codes of codes of conduct, right. and then they they can go through legal proceedings and be court martialed and all that stuff. What happened to these people who are in the, these contractors? 
That, that's an ambiguity that I don't think has been resolved. It's more than an ambiguity. It's a growing, large problem. Um, there was an article in the New York Times not long ago, again, Gulf Coast, some of these private so-called contractors, so-called security people, were uh, taken to the Gulf Coast, and they did the same, some of them did the same thing that some of them do in Iraq, which is they shoot if they have any reason whatsoever to desire to do so. They are not under the military code. They are not under anybody's control. And the, the officials on the ground in, uh, this was in New Orleans, as in Iraq, including the military uh, officers, are left with the terrible problems that are created by that kind of random mm -hmm. violence. Oh, All they can do is, you know, cancel the contract. It's absolutely true, and actually this is related to a, a larger point that applies uh, certainly to the military outsourcing and privatization, uh, but in other areas as well, which is the cherry-picking aspect of all of this, mm -hmm. which is that the corporations come in and, well, they get a contract and they do the easy parts. So, for example, I know I know firsthand because I have a close friend who was in the military who was in, uh, in Iraq, unfortunately, or in, in Kuwait as part of the Iraq invasion, and the and it's also been more widely re reported that the uh, for example these uh, contract uh, truck drivers who are hauling supplies mm -hmm. will simply refuse to go into a, a combat area they just won't do it mm -hmm. or even the ones who are functioning as soldiers they're mercenaries soldiers of fortune uh, will go in and they'll completely screw something up they'll just they'll just clear out and say well you know the hell with it and then guess who has to has to deal with the problems that are left over which is the 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 American soldiers. Yeah, tell me about how it's more efficient. Yeah, well, and I think more it's, effective, right? It's, it's interesting. We've got people who are in the military who are paid very little, as we know. Their families at home often have a terrible time while they're away, and they end up protecting as well as cleaning up the messes and being blamed for some of the actions of these private, um, so-called contractors, who the mercenaries who are making $100,000 and up. Yes, they make, so that's an interesting point, and, and it's interesting to, to trace through the logic of it, like how this, how this happens. Uh, it was a conversation I had very recently. So they're paying, let's say in round figures, they pay these contractors $100,000 to do a job that a, that a U.S. soldier would get about $25,000 to do. This is a fairly typical number. So how can that be cheaper? Well, there are several reasons for this, but one of which is they don't pay any benefits. They don't have to worry about retirement benefits. You see, if you're in the if you're in the military, uh, if you're in the military, the military has, as as is well known, uh, uh, has uh, laws in place. Uh, you know, since the GI Bill after World War II, and and many others uh, for educating, for example, soldiers and for retirement benefits and so on. None of which have to be paid by these companies. So what it is, uh, in plain English, is a screw job on the American military that they're trying to offload these obligations uh, to to the soldiers, and they do this in quite a number of different ways. Well, and, and to go back to the earlier um, discussion we were having about what this has to do with democracy, mm -hmm. across the board, um, the notion that a democracy can persist for very long, let alone, let alone thrive, when you have that kind of profit motive for the most, some of the most difficult, the most morally freighted of its activities, prisons, war, so forth, I mean, it is one thing to have... A, a, commit, a set of commitments to causes, to values, to other people, to the future of the, of the country and the people who live in it that lead you to do things like if you ask your people to go and fight, then you owe care. Um, you don't owe massive amounts of money. Everything doesn't have a price on it. You owe care and respect and dignity. You owe education for other op opportunities and so forth. So there, there's a set of values that goes with democracy that are just not the same as you can get anybody to do anything if you pay enough money and that's all you owe them. You know, it's just a, it's just a business transaction. Imagine running the things that we hold in common, that we provide for the public good only with that one motivation. That, to me, is just a heartbreak. That means the whole notion of democracy, the sort of moral core of it, has just been gutted. But uh, I agree with you completely, and I think you've put it very eloquently. It's also worth adding, though, that uh, that it's not like a, an accidental corollary of other policies that this is happening. But this is this vision that you're 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 painting. This is what is intended. 
This is what the Bush administration and their cronies are deliberately seeking to do. Well, one of the things we put put in our book, because we kept running into this, is, you know, there's a rhetoric and an ethics and a view of history and so forth that goes with their ideology. What you will hear from people is not, um, you know, we're going to reduce everything to nothing but trying to get as much money out of people as we can. Sometimes they say that, but that's not usually the rhetoric. The rhetoric is going to be, as we said, it's more efficient, more effective. Well, it's not on the ground, one. And two, there is a highly developed rhetoric, language, as any ideology has, in which what you're talking about is private sector means more innovative, more creative, more dynamic, more independent, and these days uh, the so-called free market is equated with democracy. When they say they're spreading democracy, they mean unfettered corporate capitalism, which mm-hmm. they also call the free market. Free market sounds good. Sounds like your local market. You know, you go get what you want. We're talking about international global capitalism. Yes. So, well, yeah, one of the things that um, Naomi Klein talks about in analyzing what the Iraq War is that, uh, in fact, the, the rules they set, that Bremer set up were basically a, a laissez-faire system for all for international corporations to come in and do everything in Iraq without completely unfettered. Right. And it didn't matter if they, if they hired Iraqis. It didn't matter if they were Iraqi corporations and the good of the Iraqi people had nothing to do with it. It was just open it up for international. Um, international exploitation. Let well, me just, that should, that let me just should have been absolutely no surprise amongst other things. First off, it's, that is the agenda internationally, right? That's what it means, spreading yeah. the so-called free market. They also, we found this in our research for the book, too, to astonishment, I'll admit, sometimes face dies hard. Um, the Bush administration hired Yegor Gaidar, who was the shock privatization shock therapy. Oh, from the Soviet Union. You got it. Yeah. And in order to advise on how to do it in Iraq. You're kidding. No. <laughs> I didn't not. know that. I know. I didn't either. <laughs> it, it was privatization was prime on the agenda from the beginning. And because of the situation in Iraq, which is to say we're doing this violently, this is we're taking it over by war, they used the, what they called shock therapy. Yeah, let, let me just mention a couple things. First of all, we're talking to Elizabeth Minnick, uh, who's a co-author of the book, The Fox in the Penthouse. Penthouse. Oh, I like that. <clears throat> the Fox in the, in the Hen House, How Privatization Threatens Democracy. And uh, you can give us a call at 412-268-9728. Um, we have a few more minutes. I, I wanted to just maybe um, get into another topic I had listed here is, on the website is what I call true parables of the horrors of privatization. Uh-huh. Um, it's just as a way of, of making it so our listeners can, can hear stories uh, this very simple to understand, not complicated philosophical, theoretical arguments about this versus that, but just specific things that happen um, that illustrate the fallacies uh-huh. of these arguments. And a couple of them have already come up. Um, uh-huh. Just relating to the previous uh, comment about Gaidar, that it's in the book here about TB has increased dramatically in the Soviet Union since the uh, fall of the uh, of communism there. So the, the private systems there have allowed TB to double in, in, in frequency. Uh, it could reach epidemic proportions at some point, but it's just one example of, 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 of <clears throat> a bad thing that happened there. When you destroy the, the public sector on which we rely a whole lot more than we usually remember it the the effects are are quite dramatic so another example that that we have um that was is made in your book um was the uh one of the things that they privatized in iraq was the um serving of meals uh-huh. and as a result there was a, a bombing a, a missile attack on a, on, a, on a, a food what do they call it a, a chow, hall. Yeah. chow hall and it killed 20 22 americans um where apparently military people would looked at this and said, what are you doing serving a, a bunch of people, a bunch of military people, a meal at a certain time in a certain place, all together, in a war zone? Uh-huh. Um, and that's and apparently because of, well, private company, make money. they either didn't know what they were doing or they were trying to save money by doing it that way. Of course way. they were trying to save money. That's um, what they're in the business of doing. That's also, it seems more efficient, does it not? Oh, it's more efficient, definitely more efficient. Yes. <laughs> So uh, there are other, I mean, uh, maybe you have other favorite examples, um, sort of parables of, of what goes wrong and the, the sort of the lunacy that results. I have a few more here. Well, one of, the one, one of the ones that, 
struck me because I'm also um, been involved in it with education most of my life. Um, in Dayton, Ohio, they had problems with their public school system, and like responsible people, they looked into what they might do about it, and they opened up to charter schools. Sometimes that's a good thing to do. You get some interesting experimentation. That meant they had opened to privatization, however, and the big companies moved in, and new ones sprang into being. People see a chance to profit, and they create overnight. They create their little company to run a school. They're no better at doing that than the chow hall people were in Mosul, Iraq. And the next thing you know, that people in Dayton have found themselves with more charter schools than the whole state of New Jersey. This is just Dayton. And the evaluation of the schools, the older ones, the public ones, but specifically now the newer ones run for profit, um, A, has not been thorough at all, which it should be, and B, when they have done it, they, most of them have turned out to be seriously subpar, and they're still proliferating because here is this opening to get at this public money. The people in Dayton are paying millions more than they were when they mm. thought, when they named this as a problem. Wow, that's an interesting story. Yeah, I was, I was really appalled. And the people are trying, you know, very hard. They thought they were being responsible. There's no question about that. We have some of the testimony from various people involved on all sides in in the book. And the people who were for it are now saying, you know, this is doing terrible things with our our children's lives. Gets out of hand very fast. Yeah. Um, do you have any, anything else? I was curious. Uh, well, I do. There, if you had any other, I had some other ones, but I'm not. I'm not sure that these parables are actually related to exactly to privatization as much as uh, deregulation, which is sort of a, you know, a, a similar a similar phenomenon, a related phenomenon. One example that I that I noticed was the, the for example, the destruction of the fisheries where. Uh, the in Newfoundland, Canada, um, the Atlantic uh, cod was was um, sort of the economic basis for that civilization for 500 years, mm. and it's dying. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason it's dying is because they big factory ships came in and just overfished and just fished out all the fish, and they're gone. Mm. They're just gone now. They're not there. It's not like it's not like well they did something more efficient. They just cleaned it out. And so it's a suicidal. Uh, act well of, of you know short-term thinking, which these corporations did, and uh, now what are we left with? You know what that does is underscore one of the sort of basic civics lessons from fifth, sixth grade that we were all supposed to learn was about balance, um, checking and balancing powers, dividing them up. It's one of the principles of our government. Mm -hmm. um, it also applies to government and private or sector or government and the economic system, if you will, they need to be in balance with each other. Mm -hmm. When you deregulate, this administration regularly works to deregulate the private and overregulate uh, the public, as we were saying with, uh, with schools and so forth. They've done that in a number of areas. What that does is allow the kind of thing you were just talking about in Newfoundland to happen. You take, you take away the checks and balances against the drive to make ever more profit, which is inherent in this capitalist competitive system, it gets that's what you're supposed to do. That's your one legal responsibility is to make money. Mm -hmm. right. So you take away the checks and balances which so irritate people, <laughs> mm -hmm. the rules and regulations that government does, and that's precisely what happens. The pendulum goes way too far. So, I mean, you know, what we're arguing in the book is... is you know, not all business is bad, not all profit is bad, not government is always perfect, you know. Of course not. What we're arguing for is that the balance has been badly set wrong so that we can we see what happens when we don't have a, a, a functioning government to check these the dynamic pressures of the economic system. So people get out there and they're just trying to keep their business going and they work very hard and the next thing you know, they've created a terrible problem because they overdid. Mm -hmm. It's our, our bulwark against the tragedy of the commons, the famous uh, description of what goes wrong when you have only private individual interests at stake and the everyone globally loses. That's right. All right. Well, we've been talking with Elizabeth Minnick, who is a co-author with uh, Sai Khan of a new book called The Fox in the Hen House, How Privatization Threatens Democracy. Uh, thank you very much, Elizabeth, for being on Left Out. It's been a great pleasure having you on the show, and um, perhaps we'll have you on again sometime.
Well, thank you very much. It was great talking to you. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. We will take a brief break, and we will be back uh, and left out uh, shortly. Well, we're back on Left Out on WRCT 88.3 FM. Uh, we've been talking with Elizabeth Minnick, who's an author of a new book called The Fox in the Hen House, uh, How Privatization Threatens Democracy, and you might like to check out that book, and you can look at the leftout.info website uh, for further information about the Minnick and Kahn book. It actually brings up a point. Uh, last night I drove out to Oakmont, to the Oaks uh, Theater in Oakmont, to see uh, the, I think it was the local premiere, or close to it, of the new movie by Robert Greenwald called uh, Walmart, The High Cost of Low Prices which uh, was playing there and is playing around uh, around Pittsburgh all this week. Uh, I think tomorrow night is, or tomorrow noon, there's, it's playing at the Steelworkers Union Building. But you can, uh, if you're interested in seeing it, you can uh, go to the website wal- uh, walmartmovie.com, uh, just one word, walmartmovie.com. It will give you information. You can enter your zip code, and it will give you a list of people who are showing it. It's uh, in many cases being shown in people's homes uh, on, a, you know, on a small basis, like they have a limit of 20 people you have to sign up. In other cases, for example, it was shown at the Oaks Theater. It'll be shown by the Steelworkers. It's, it's well worth looking looking at. Uh, you may you may uh, remember Robert Greenwald uh, wrote uh, uh, wrote excuse me uh, made a, a movie a documentary I think it was a year before Lax called Iraq Uncovered. Uh, which we showed here at CMU and uh, was shown at a number of other places around, which was also a very interesting movie. Another, uh, somehow that brings me on another point, which is uh, at the Three Rivers Film Festival was a new documentary called Why We Fight, which uh, was also very interesting. Um, played only two nights because it was part of the film festival, and I think we'll be back in town in January or February, and we'll let you know more about that when it comes up if you have a chance. That's also uh, very worth uh, very worth seeing. So um, we can switch topics a little bit here, um, and um, we, uh, yeah. So, so uh, one recent uh, recent event that uh, that took place um, related to some of the topics we've been talking about here on Left Out uh, is the L.A. Times fired one of their um, op-ed columnists, Robert Shear, who was one of their staunchly liberal and anti-war columnists. Um, he's been there for. It's a columnist, I think, for 13 years or something, and prior to that he was a, a reporter at the L.A. Times. He was fired last week. And um, he wrote a statement that said, On Friday I was fired as a columnist by the publisher of the Los Angeles Times, where I've worked for 30 years. The publisher, Jeff Johnson, who has not offered a word of explanation to me, has privately told people that he hated every word that I wrote. I assume that mostly refers to my exposing the lies used by President Bush to justify the invasion of Iraq. Fortunately, 60% of, of Americans now get that point. But only after tens of thousands of Americans and Iraqis have been killed and maimed as the carnage spirals out of control. My only regret is that my pen was not sharper and my words tougher. Starting Wednesday morning, my column will be appearing here on the Huffington Post. So um, he will be uh, switching from the L.A. Times to this uh, online uh, website called the Huffington Post uh, which I guess is just HuffingtonPost.com, um, and you, you can find links to it on our website. Uh, one of the things that uh, is disturbing about this is the the idea that the publisher would simply take a a popular, uh, scholarly, uh, and and a very good columnist whose uh, whose whose work is is not only popular but also accurate, and also uh, you know. Um, Prophetic and and um, uh, uh, just probably one of the best columnists they had at the L.A. Times, um, and to fire him, and so this was discussed here on Left Out uh, a similar question that that we came up a couple of weeks ago um, in a conversation that I had with um, Bernard Chazelle and Norman Solomon about whether the New York Times was happy with uh, Paul Krugman and Bob Herbert, and the the consensus we had was that they probably weren't very happy with the, the the kind of things that they're talking about. And the question came up was, well, why don't why why doesn't the Times get rid of them? And um, I felt that well, they probably had contractual obligations, and um, Norman Solomon thought they probably had uh, they were worried because uh, they would fight if they fired a famous guy like Krugman, uh, who's a popular guy, it would make a, a stink for the paper. But um, I think that has been proven to be false by what the L.A. Times has done. I mean, they've, they're going to take heat for this, and they're going to move on. 
Uh, it seems to be that way. Uh, there is a, they have an explanation which we link to in the leftout.info website from the Los Angeles Times. It's extremely lame and generic, uh, our discussion of the fact that they fired Robert Shear, that they received uh, a lot of, uh, <clears throat> Excuse me. A lot of complaints from uh, readers about it, but basically, uh, they the, the the gist of the the gist of the article is uh, we don't give a damn, uh, and uh, they've replaced him by Jonah Goldberg, who some of you may know as a Republican wingnut who writes on the uh, who writes on the uh, uh, from uh, from that perspective is being re- replacing Robert Sher in the LA Times. <laughs> So his uh, his uh, influence through the um, through the um, uh, through uh, through the Times will be the Los Angeles Times will be missed, um, but uh, but he'll still be writing on the Huffington Post. But he'll be Post, still so be available in the we'll, Huffington Post. We'll be able to read his columns and and quote them here and left out and and so on. Um, but it is odd that that, that they didn't uh, explain. They just if you read the explanation, the so-called explanation, um, it's just saying well oh. So many people wrote in. Well, I guess that means that um, that means that he was a good columnist. Uh, and then um, we hope that if we ever fire any of our new columnists, they'll be also get lots of letters for. I mean, it's just like it was just nonsensical. Well, there we go. And, and, so. and also, I mean, like we, you fire a guy, you got to have a reason. One can There's only, got to be a reason. The idea that that <laughs> it just happened no by, by by a flip of a coin. I mean, come on. Yeah, that uh, seems. What, what was it? You know, an act of God. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Seems seems rather unlikely, but there there you are. It's a matter of some speculation as to what their what their true motives uh, would be. Uh, so come other some other items. I mean, the news this week. One thing that's been, uh, as many of you noticed, uh, since uh, Veterans Day, the Bush administration decided to use Veterans Day for political purposes. I know once again that will seem rather surprising that the Bush administration would put something like Veterans Day to its political purposes. Mm. So mm-hmm. uh, Shrub pulled, excuse me, uh, President Bush pulled one of his uh, one of his uh, standard maneuvers, which was to use uh, soldiers uh, as a backdrop for his political politically motivated speeches. He loved to uh, surround himself with soldiers and to uh, play uh, cowboys and Indians and pretend that he's a soldier. And so he does, he's done this twice, one on uh, November the 11th, uh, last Friday, on Veterans Day itself in Pennsylvania, and now he's also up in Alaska, uh, apparently on his way to Japan. I think he's in Japan at the moment. Um, and uh, and so now they've decided that, uh, I, uh, just to, for listeners who are cu- accustomed, I hope, to ignoring the, ignoring uh, President Bush, it, it, one of the things that their, their current talk talking point is that the invasion of Iraq wasn't their fault. The invasion of Iraq was due to a worldwide intelligence failure, a worldwide intelligence failure, you see. So the entire world, everyone, um, was uh, was misinformed by because of the, I guess, the global CIA uh, had uh, somehow uh, misinformed absolutely everyone. It's funny, funny how that goes. But, you know, it's a characteristic of, of, of alcoholics and recovering drug addicts that uh, everyone else is to blame for their problems besides themselves. And uh, this is a good example. Uh, Bush is going around figuring out, well, it's the Democrats, it's the French, it's the Russian, it's those, uh, you know, whoever we may think of. And now it's a, due to a worldwide intelligence failure. Yeah. So one comment I had on this was that one of the things Bush quoted was he said, quoted John Kerry as uh, sort of advocating the, you know, the, the invasion of Iraq. But actually, he actually quoted him in his speech. And all, all Kerry said was um, basically that... Uh, he was authorized. He felt that um, that it was appropriate for for uh, the U.S. to go in and use force to dis- disarm Saddam Hussein. That's what he said. Well, at the time of the invasion, he was already disarmed. There were no weapons there, and the inspectors were in there already finding that there were no weapons. So, it's Kerry did not advocate the invasion of Iraq. He advocated that. It was allowing the possibility, if it were necessary, to disarm him to invade Iraq. So he was misquoting uh, even even what Kerry said. And and it's true that the Democrats, many of them, did vote for this authorization. But based on which, what information? But yeah, well, based on the bogus information presented by by, by Bush. By by Bush. Yeah. So, but uh, and, and there's a I mean there's a piece by David Korn in the Nation that uh, I linked to on the on the um, left out webpage, which goes through the entire speech piece by piece and just uh, disassembling it. And basically, the, it's uh, this title of the piece is Bush Rewrites History to Criticize His Anti-War Critics. So one of the things, of course, Bush has been saying is that they re- they're rewriting history, but in fact, as Corn in, in great detail uh, d- d- demonstrates, that it's Bush who's rewriting history. 
Yeah, that's the way that's the way it goes with the Bush administration. So yeah, it's funny that they're accusing accusing everyone else of rewriting history. I think it's uh, it's a riot. But the good news is that probably uh, probably it, it isn't going to stick. People are onto their onto their games, and it becomes increasingly pathetic that President Bush keeps uh, it, it keeps try, trotting out the same old arguments. You're being unpatriotic if you are criticizing uh, their policy, and so on and so on. And you know that just isn't going isn't going to isn't going to work. Work the way it used to. I think that people are are figuring out what's going on. It's also a riot that he's still running against John Kerry. The thing that he uh, the thing that he brings up, uh, you know, you bring that out, and all of your points are perfectly accurate and utterly irrelevant because uh, he's not running against John Kerry anyway. He's just kind of longing for the good old days when he could win, which was one year ago. And boy, what a difference a year can make. Uh, one of our callers, uh, someone called in to ask us to repeat the information about the voting machines, and so let me mention that again. So on Thursday night, on uh, uh, excuse me, Thursday evening, 5 p.m. Uh, at the Allegheny County the Allegheny County Council at the Allegheny County Courthouse will be holding public hearings at 5 p.m. on the uh, voter uh, on the uh, choice of new voting machines that are that is being made by the county. Uh, they're choosing between one of three machines, and you're uh, welcome to the, the public is invited to speak. Danny and I will both be there speaking, and we will be speaking in favor of having a voter verifiable paper trail uh, on the vote on the electronic voting machines. Uh, if you wish to speak, you can contact John Maschio. I think M A. CIO at 412-350-6495, and he will deal with uh, registering you. You must do that if by noon on Wednesday in order to be eligible to speak. You must register in advance. So uh, another announcement, just to finish up the program, I want to re- repeat some of our announcements, uh, that there's an annual convergence to close the School of the Americas um, and that's taking place in Fort Benning, Georgia, uh, over the weekend of the 18th to the 21st, November. And uh, the Thomas Burton Center is organizing buses to go down there. If you're interested in going, you can give a call to the Merton Center at uh, 412-361-3022 or visit their website. Um, okay, uh, so very good. Thank you for that. Uh, I think that completes our program for this week. You've been listening to Left Out, a reality-based independent radio on WRCT. Thanks to Matt Horniak for ably producing today's program, and we will see you in two weeks' time. Thank you for listening.